Nikki Haley in DEI at Florida's public colleges and universities out. We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, the dominator, Dominic Pino, and the notorious MBD, Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a Nashville podcast. Our sponsors of this episode are the Patriots History of the United States and the Bonson Group. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, this has been uh, pretty clear for a while, but we got the official confirmation from the Nikki Haley team that she is going to be in as of, I believe, February 15th. What do you make of it? Well, I mean, she's always had ambitions for the presidency and has always been talked about excitedly since she became uh, governor of South Carolina as a potential candidate. She's from an early and important state in the uh, Republican primary contests. She is young, attractive, uh, a woman, uh, a woman of color, I guess, right? She's of Indian background. Mm-hmm. Um so, and seems to represent a kind of new generation of the Republican Party. Um, and she seemed, you know, at different times in her career, she seemed to have a very good ear for where politics are moving. So, um, you know, she found an opportune moment to um, take down the Confederate flag symbol uh, in South Carolina from the State House. Um, and, and, uh, you know, kind of did it at a time when many conservatives were willing, uh, to accept this as a, uh, a gesture and not, uh, not willing to call her a sellout for doing it, uh, as they might've done five years earlier or five years later. Um, she has good instincts. Um, however, I don't, I don't know if she has the skills, um, I can just say that, um, you know, I saw her during the Trump years. I remember a, um, a big dinner for the American Enterprise Institute where she was the keynote speaker. And, uh, you know, she was ambassador to the UN at the time. She was giving a speech basically on the very non controversial topic of the deference that, um, administration officials owe to the president, right? That, you know, she was kind of, that was her theme was. To the uh, committee is sort of uh, against the committee to save, save the world or save America. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and for the, the, you know, she's trying to vindicate the constitution that there's no constitutional role for cabinet officials or, or other um, employees of the executive to work against the mm-hmm. elected president. And you couldn't imagine, a, a you know, N- Nikki Haley has kind of associated herself with kind of American Enterprise Institute style conservatism, full spectrum, right? Um, you know, kind of culturally conservative, but not insurgent um, foreign policy, more on the hawkish, more on the neoconservative side, pro-liberal world order and the maintenance thereof. And she was a total dud that night, 
right? Like this is the most this is the most sympathetic audience you could imagine. Oh, after, all, after all that build up, she ended up being a dud. She was a total dud, right? Like, and and actually, I came away from it thinking, like, oh my gosh, she just hurt her presidential ambitions because this is this is a room filled with people and donors who should love her, and uh, she came across pretty flat. And I, I I was surprised given her reputation. So I. Which is just to say that going forward, if if any listeners are hearing my Nikki Haley analysis, it's always going to be colored by this uh, experience. <laughs> no, I mean it's true. I, like I judge candidates pretty quickly. I remember I saw, you know, in two thousand seven, I saw Barack Obama in South Carolina at Gamecock Stadium before he was polling ahead of Hillary in that state, mm-hmm. and I saw the effect he had on the crowd. And I called up my editor at the time. And I said, this guy's going to be the next president. Like he's going to crush Hillary in the state. And she's like, you've no basis for saying this. All the polls show Hillary way ahead. She's got the black churches like America, like African-Americans don't even think this guy is black. <laughs> like it's not going to, I was like, no, I've, I've seen it. I've seen what he does to people and he's going to set this place on fire, which he did. And, yeah. um, and I- for, for Haley, I just don't, I don't know if she has it. Uh, mm-hmm. She has the resume, but I don't know if she has the, star quality. So my experience with Obama, I followed him around a little bit at, at the beginning when he first announced and he was filling arenas and he just wasn't, wasn't quite as polished as he would become and, you know, go on for an hour and 20 minutes and people would be leaving in the back. So that, that, that led me to believe, Oh, this, this phenomenon, you know, it's, it's not going to last. But then I was actually, I think it was at his last rally in, in Iowa before the caucuses. And then you could just feel it. I mean, it was happening. It, it, was, it was one of the, the, the more uh, electric political events I, I've ever witnessed. So my, my Nikki Haley experience when she was at the UN, the National UN Institute had her for a, a little dinner in, in New York, and, and she was great. Uh, I, I, I did a Q&A with her. Um, you know, I kind of wonder, it felt as though on some of the foreign policy stuff, she kind of had one answer. And if you ask for a second or third, maybe maybe the, the depth of knowledge wasn't there. But she was very, very winsome, very charming. And people want to, to like her, which is a, a nice quality and a politician. But Dominic, I, I think a problem she's going to have is what is she? Is she is she a, a, a Trumpist? Is she a, a, a not Trumpist? Is she a populist? Is she a traditional conservative? I, I just I, I'm not not sure um, that she has a clear identity or even knows herself. And a little indication of this is just the the hostage of fortune she really foolishly created to when she said I, I'm not going to run if Trump runs, and then she had to back off that. And that's just. It's not a good sign when when a, a politician makes such a uh, who wants to to jump up to this level of national politics makes that kind of uh, that kind of mistake. And Trump was asked about it and gave her a little bit of a pass. I mean, he noted it. It was sort of Nixonian because he noted it, um, uh, which you know, it's not a good thing for her. But then he's like, "Oh, it's fine. You know, she can do whatever she she wants." So that that may be an indication that Trump realizes that uh, at some level, a, a bigger field's better for him than a smaller field. Yeah, I think that's right, Rich. I think there's, uh, I, th- I think she's suffering from the same problem that a lot of politicians suffer from uh, in our current environment, which is that they all think that they need to be president. Um, I think it's pretty obvious that Nikki Haley is a talented politician. I think she was a great governor of South Carolina, did a great job there. Um, but, you know, she hasn't held that office since 2017, and there are other current governors uh, who are going to have uh, more to say on 
you know, state level executive experience in the coming cycle. I think uh, she was a very good UN ambassador in the Trump administration. And I think uh, if uh, I think a smart play for her, I mean, she's, she'd be an obvious pick for a secretary of state in a in a Republican administration. Um, I think she would do a great job in that role. I think she's probably better suited to that role than she is the president, even though I think she'd be a perfectly fine president if she were to win. But uh, I think she does suffer from a lot of these problems that you mentioned. I mean, the, the whole, uh, uh, her relationship with, uh, with Trump is very, it, it, it's going to be very hard for her to talk her way out of uh, the things that she has said before. Uh, and other candidates are not going to have uh, are not going to have those problems in the same way because they didn't work for the guy. And then uh, it, you know, and, and 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 that was a that was a flip too because in the primaries she was one of the people that was calling him out for for various things uh, that he was doing in in 2016. And so uh, for her to then join the administration was a flip. And then and then uh, we're flipping again here. And so uh, you know I, I don't think that that's Fatal necessarily. Obviously, a lot of people uh, are going to have problems with that because, hey, he was the Republican president for four years. So if you're a Republican, it's, it's going to be that um, there's going to be some difficulty there. But uh, I think she faces it probably worse than others and lacks a compelling case as to why she specifically is better than other people with similar resumes. Yeah. So she, she's uh, been emphasizing the general generational thing. A lot. So, Charlie, how, how do you read just in the pure tactical level? Everyone else has been hanging back, and this is kind of uh, as a, a pundit and political an analyst has been frustrating because it should be a fascinating race, but it's been very slow to get going. All the potential governor candidates, they do have legislative sessions to deal with, but there, there's also an element where people are, are thinking, well, well, why should I get in uh, first and have Trump potentially uh, training his fire on on me alone, but that that didn't deter Nikki Haley. How do you read her uh, relatively early announcement here? I think it's smart because I think two things are simultaneously true. One is that you are right when you say, "What is she? What does she represent? Which wing of the party does she belong to? Is she a Trump person? Is she not a Trump person? Is she a Reaganite? Is she a Hawk? Is she a reformer?" We don't really know. She doesn't seem to have many good answers to those questions. The second thing that is true is that she might have a shot. Now, I don't think she's going to win the nomination. I do think she's one of the few people who could break out for whatever reason and suddenly find herself in a good position. She's inoffensive. She's much better liked by the base than most analysts think. She's attractive, and she's a woman. She's probably the only woman who's going to run. Why not roll the dice? I'm not talking from my perspective, because I have written before that we don't need people to roll the dice. We need a very small number of dice. Because if we have too many dice, Donald Trump's going to win the nomination again. But from her perspective, I can see the case. Perhaps she catches fire. Perhaps she benefits from South Carolina being an early state. Perhaps she has the right mix of, uh, well, what's the word for it? The right mix of stability 
and fire that appeals to a party that is tired of Trumpist fireworks. Again, I don't think that's going to happen. I do think that's her best play. Unlike Ron DeSantis, no one looks at Nikki Haley and says, oh, she's the governor. No, with DeSantis, it's he's the anti-lockdown guy. He's the anti-woke guy. Uh, with um, Trump, he's been president before. Uh, you're going to have someone in the race, probably, who is the dovish candidate. You may have someone in the race who is the new right candidate. Then there'll be someone in the race, like maybe a Larry Hogan, who is the moderate blue state uh, candidate. She doesn't have that. Uh, but that isn't to say that the dynamics can't give her a path. And uh, I think she's recognized that. And I think that going in early is therefore smart. I also think, whether this is fair or not, that she is probably slightly less susceptible to the risks of being alone in a race with Donald Trump than some other candidates, purely mm -hmm. because she's a woman. Donald Trump has a bad habit of talking to women in a way that puts off voters. Mm -hmm. I don't think voters care as much when Trump talks to Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz as he historically has. Yep. If he gets it wrong with Nikki Haley, she may be able to play that to her advantage. Among yeah, there's, there's a little moment where a Car Carly Fiorina had that going against Trump. Yeah, so... That is another calculation that she's probably made, and I'm not sure that's wrong. But I don't think she's going to be the nominee. I don't think she's going to get close. And I am worried that she's going to help uh, dilute the anti-Trump vote, especially in a state such as South Carolina, and help him get in again. So, MBD, two things. One, you had a post the other day where you're theorizing, ah, maybe maybe DeSantis is, is, is helping Trump in that he's free freezing freeze in the field. Two, to, um, to Dominic's point about the complication if you work for Trump, you know, running against him, this is a complication a lot of candidates are going to have, right? So Nikki, Nikki has it. Uh, you know, she was just there a year and wasn't particularly close to, to Trump, but Pompeo was there all, all four years. He's taken some oblique shots at Trump. You know, after the midterms, there was a tweet, of course, not naming him, but, uh, you know, I, I'm not getting tired of the winning. What happened to all the winning? We are promised winning. And then Pence, who's been more forthright in his criticisms of Trump, but when, when we uh, talked about when he started his his book tour, it's it's complicated. You know, he refers to the Trump-Pence administration and then kind of has to admit there was this terrible thing that Trump wanted him to do with, at the end uh, <laughs> and violating uh, grotesquely his constitutional duty, which he refused to do. But but he kind of blames that on bad bad lawyering, you know, on the, the quality of the attorneys who are, who are with Trump at the end. So th this this all adds up to, you know, they're, they're not, not going to be many people are going to get in the race. And, and, you know, besides Chris Christie or maybe a couple others you, you can imagine are just like, okay, and I'm taking a sledgehammer to Trump. He's still the front runner. He's still the guy. Someone has to take him down. There's going to be, a, otherwise there's going to be a lot of tiptoeing just the way there was in 16. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, however, I don't know. I don't know that that's true. Be there might be tiptoeing in ads or in TV appearances. But once you get to the debate stage, I really do think, you know, the lesson from 2016 is kill or be killed. Like, mm -hmm. kill or be killed. Like, you have to show some fight or else 
there's no point in you running at all, right? Like there's all the commentary after the first debate would be about how um, people didn't attack Trump enough, right? I mean, from the left, from much of the right, you know, if, if people failed to do that, if they were all focused all their fire on DeSantis or on whoever the front, the non-Trump front runner is. Um, and again, unlike 2016, I mean, the, the thing that, that kind of really helped Trump in 2016 is that the most electable or, or, or the, the person that was hanging in with Trump the latest was Ted Cruz, who was absolutely loathed by most of elected Republicans who did not want to help him, did not want to endorse him, and preferred to 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 let Trump win and and just kind of write off mm-hmm. 2016 as uh, a Hillary year as her turn, rather than let this smirking guy from Texas who thinks he knows better than everyone. Uh, be leader of the party, right? They thought it would all be a joke and it would all be over by November. Um, that won't be the case this time. There's The alternative is very likely to be someone that the vast majority of Republicans can rally around. So I think there will be... I, I don't think the dynamic is going to allow for tiptoeing for very long. Yeah. So Dominic, Dan McLaughlin and our colleagues been been on this theme where there there was there was no one else in the the 2016 field that was like DeSantis right who was polling as strongly as DeSantis had the grassroots support of DeSantis had the credibility with Trump's voters you know there there weren't really there weren't Trump voters yet <laughs> um and at least at the beginning of of 2016 and this this is a you know, a, a different kind of threat to, to Trump because the the establishment front runner Jeb was just ripe for the the taking down and uh, Trump did it and then the the anti-establishment anti-trump candidate was was so hated by elements of the, of the establishment you know I remember quotes from Bob Dole and others like yeah we hate we hate Ted Cruz so much per MBD's uh, uh, regarding MB, MB, MBD's point that we're, 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 we'll, do, we'll we'll take we'll take uh, we'll, we'll go with Trump you know this total unknown known quantity because we already know we we hate Ted Cruz but it, the, the DeSantis is a different different animal yeah the joke has been used uh, with other people but it applies to Ted Cruz too of, uh, you know, why do people hate Ted Cruz when they first meet him and saves time. Uh, I I think the uh, Ron DeSantis definitely has something that nobody else had in 2016. Uh, You know, Dan's pointed that out. Phil Klein's pointed that out as well. Uh, And, you know, obviously polls at this stage are uh, suspect, but uh, polls from a similar stage in 2016 uh, relative to the 2016 race, did not show anyone with the level of support that Ron DeSantis has. You know, you had Scott Walker, Ben Carson, Jeb Bush, all hanging in around 10% each, uh, and and you had uh, a couple other people in the in the high single digits, and and then you had Trump, uh, who who came in and and was able to win win a lot of these things with you know 30, 35% of the vote. Um, that, that's not how it's going to shake out this time if, if, if Ron DeSantis gets in. I mean, DeSantis is not, is not polling at, at 10% anywhere. You know, he's, he's polling much higher than that, and depending on what poll you look at, is, is, is ahead of Trump. And so 
Um, I think that uh, I think it's just a totally different animal. I think we're also underrating the possibility of somebody coming in uh, from the sort of MAGA wing and basically saying, "Hey, I'm going to do uh, the stuff that that Trump wants to do, but I'm not going to obsess over the 2020 election." Um, I think you could see something like that because you know there's a pretty compelling case to be made if you know just to take building the wall as an example. Um, uh, you know, Donald Trump said he was going to build the wall, and all he did was talk about it for four years. We didn't build the wall. I'm going to actually build the wall. You know, this uh, alternative candidate could say, um, and and I'm also not going to have my surrogates running around uh, stealing money from little old ladies, telling them it's going to go to build the wall, uh, and then actually just taking it for myself, which is what Steve Bannon was implicated in. And so uh, I, I think there is sort of that case as well that 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 is that is really uh, open. For the taking uh, from from that wing, and so that can split up Trump's vote uh, in that direction too. And so I I I don't think we should overlearn lessons from from 2016, and I think we should probably uh, be a little bit more cautious about thinking about you know what what the ideal composition of the field is. I, I don't think it's 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 quite as obvious. Now, obviously, it's it is totally possible that. That it could play out the same way as 2016 as well, but I think we're uh, underrating the chances of Trump's vote being able to be split by the addition of extra candidates. Charlie Cook, exit question to you, and I warn you, it's a nebulous exit question. It's not as crisp and cogent as my usual exit questions, but it's your sense that on the debate stage, when we, when we, we get there, and I think the first one may be scheduled in in August, that's so not too far away, but there will be a consensus on that debate stage that Trump lost the 2020 election or almost everyone with a few exceptions. Again, Chris Christie would be a, a likely candidate if he actually runs for this. Um, uh, everyone will tiptoe around it. Wow. I had not thought about that at all. Um, uh, blew, blew your mind with this question. That said, uh, yeah, and you were down on your question and, and said it wasn't as. I got to ask nebulous, opinion. nebulous exit questions more Absolutely. often. Absolutely, the age of the nebulous exit question has <laughs> begun. I think people will tiptoe around it, and it will be shameful. Emily, uh, I totally disagree. I I think they're. I think. Every candidate, but maybe one non-Trump candidate, will be taking the position that he lost. And I, I say this because I think the, the, uh, the, the one being Trump. Uh, no, I, I think there might there might be like one MAGA candidate who's like, "Yeah, tr- you you didn't lose last time." <laughs> but uh, just based on Ron DeSantis the other day was asked a little bit about some of of Trump's attacks, and Ron DeSantis's answer was not didn't address Trump directly, but directly address this, which is, he said, you know, when you have a crisis like we did with COVID-19 and you're an executive, you face a test of leadership and we got reelected in Florida. (laughs) And not only did we get reelected, we got reelected big. And the, the, the implication was, and Trump didn't right. And Trump failed that test. He didn't get reelected, but that's not direct. That is dancing around it. I think it was. Listen, he's not a declared candidate yet, no, so that's true. I think 
that if that if that is the preview of what he's going to say and let it speak for itself, I think if he said that on a debate stage, and then you start hearing the ho- ho- hooting and hollering of the the crowd who picks up on the implication, like it it'll be obvious, and Trump will have to respond. And I think if DeSantis does that, I think most of the field will follow DeSantis. All right, Dominic, break the tie. No pressure. Uh, I agree with MBD. I think you're going to probably have one other non-Trump candidate up there who's trying to be a stuck-up about it, and I think everybody else is going to say uh, something along the lines of, you know, uh, we don't want to nominate a loser to run again. I, I think this is really, uh, this this is the issue that will allow other candidates to differentiate themselves the most, is, is this Trump's obsession with 2020, his inability to move on from it, and uh, if you're looking to uh, if you're looking to win, you have to differentiate yourself from the field, and I think that that is going to be uh, that is going to be the the single issue that will allow other candidates to do that most effectively. So, so Dominic or, or MBD, do you have someone in mind? This this one mega mega candidate. Uh. If if you don't, that's okay. Dominic, now's the time to announce your run. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna retie this and go with go with Charlie. I think they'll be tiptoeing. I I'm the opposite. I think there might be one who who shoots at Trump directly on this until right at the end. So I, I think um, I, I take MBD's point that DeSantis is basically making this argument, but it was doing it indirectly and he's not yet a candidate so maybe he'll be more direct about it i don't think he will i think it's like a, a, a week before iowa when you have that that last debate in in iowa then someone will shotgun trump to the face on this but uh, otherwise i think there'll be a lot of caution for fear of what uh, what republican um primary voters think think of the question with that Let's stop and hear from our first sponsor of this episode of Patriots History of the United States. Acclaimed historians Larry Swikert and Michael Allen salute America's true history in their best-selling book, A Patriots History of the United States, celebrating the strengths of the men and women who built this country, this definitive history. And it is definitive. This is a, a, a substantial work. Provides a new generation of readers with a firm understanding of America's discovery, founding, and advancement through current times, highlighting why this nation and its ideals are worth defending. A Patriot's History of the United States is a must-read for every American and is on sale now wherever fine books are sold. I have a copy of this book somewhere here in my collection. We have uh, numerous copies in the office, we have one in our a video podcast studio, which we never use as a podcast studio. Uh, it is a, it's a tremendous work, more important than ever with what's going on in terms of education and the 1619 Project, which is very likely in some form or other being force-fed to your kids if you have kids. And uh, Patriot's History of the United States is a great antidote. So speaking of education Charlie, I know we we talk about Florida so much, and uh, so my apologies to listeners. We're going to do it again, but there's there's just always something going on, and and this is legitimately a big deal. We're talking before we start start a record. I think you know the biggest thing that DeSantis has uh, proposed, certainly in the the non COVID realm, it's a, a major reform of higher education, where he says he wants to eliminate all DEI bureaucracy at public colleges and universities in Florida. 
that's a, a extremely worthy goal. You might have a, a problem with nomenclature and the, these the, everyone with DEI and their title now or in their their uh, department head or whatever is eliminating that 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 name as we speak, uh, eroding the force of tenure, allowing post-tenure review, eroding the power of the faculty over hires and allowing presidents, you know, the uh, a governor can uh, appoint these these presidents and then, then you give the president the, the power to hire uh, really an end run around uh, potentially uh, woke faculty members. And then uh, something that's near and dear to my heart, requiring uh, Western Civ courses um, so, some, some concerns about, well, if you do that, are you going to get a woke version of Western Civ? And if you want to try to prevent the woke version of Western Civ, are you going to run into First Amendment issues trying to um, specifically stipulate what uh, professors would, would say and teach in the classroom? But I, I think directionally, this, this is all um, really worthy stuff. But what do you make of it? Well, first off, I think that the idea that by pushing back against the status quo in public universities, Ron DeSantis is somehow politicizing higher education is hilarious. Higher education is already, by design, extremely politicized, deliberately politicized. From the 1970s onwards, the left slowly took over higher education, having said explicitly that it intended to take over higher education and having explained why. And now, when pushing back against DeSantis' ideas, the people who did that are pretending it never happened. They're insisting that their deliberate attempt to control that sector is just neutrality. It's just the norm. It's the state of nature. And it's not. And we all know it's not. I mean, usually you can win me over by appealing to open inquiry and small-l liberalism. But here I'm going to laugh in your face if you try that, because I can see what's being done. As for the specifics, well, most of them I like. The DEI, which DeSantis mentioned by name in his announcement, is an extremely pernicious ideology that destroys everything it touches. And it's a fraud. It's a marketing exercise. The purpose of DEI is to make a vicious fringe ideology, and that's what it is, an ideology that involves loyalty oaths, seem benign and inclusive when it is anything but. DEI people sell their wares under the carapace of small-l liberalism, and then they act like Pol Pot. And in a broader sense, I think this is probably why DeSantis focused on this, that's what the left has managed to do with the universities writ large. They have mastered the act of using the language of liberalism and tolerance and inclusivity as a cover for ideological conformity, while opposing their opponents of the thing they're guilty of themselves. We should nuke DEI from space. On tenure, our listeners know what I think of tenure. I don't think tenure is important, and I don't think it's desirable. I favor, as a matter of habit, at-will employment in almost every circumstance, and I don't see why universities should be any different. But even if I did, even if I were persuaded by those who insist that tenure is important, 
I would still be aware that whatever advantages tenure might confer, it is not applied equally in practice. The whole area seems to me to be Calvin Ball. I've been in America for 12 years. And all I've seen of tenure in that time is that it protects left-wing people who say awful things, but not right-wing people who say awful things, because via the magic of Assat's inclusivity and increasingly via the magic of DEI, what the right-wing people say is always deemed categorically different in some way that allows them to end up like Joe Pesci in Goodfellas, convinced they're about to get made, actually about to get shot in the head. So I don't have an issue with this. I would love an open marketplace of ideas. But we don't have one. And if you set up public institutions, and we're talking here about public institutions, not private institutions, not private businesses, not private schools, public institutions, and if you allow politicians to run those institutions then politicians get to run those institutions even when you don't like those politicians. If you want to privatize everything, I am all ears. You can join my Privatize Everything Club. I think Dominic's already a member. <laughs> there are literally dozens of us, but if you don't, if you don't want to do that, which the progressives who are complaining about this don't, then you can't have it both ways. If I'm forced to pay for it, then I get some say in it. You know, the, the universities, they're not some free-floating fourth branch of government, no more than the FBI or the DOJ. They're part of the government. And in a democratic republic, they're therefore part of the people. And I'll just say one thing to finish on, because I've heard people, some of whom I admire, saying that there are risks here. I think that's going to be a hard sell for conservatives, especially if it's a hard sell for me. One of the reasons that I don't have a great deal of time for the people who are complaining about all this is that I actually don't think, outside of the hard sciences, that there's a great deal at stake. I'm not impressed by most professors. I'm not impressed by most students. I'm not impressed by most universities. Increasingly, frankly, I think the whole thing's a scam. So I'm very, very open to new ideas. I'm very open to kicking down the fence because I've seen what the fence does and I think it sucks. So, MBD, what, what do you think of these ideas and do you consider them Orbanists or Orbanist or Orban-ish? Um, yes and no on the latter question. Um, yes, because Viktor Orban did the same exact thing. He used uh he and the legislature in hungary used their power to defund state-funded uh gender studies and other majors at uh colleges that the state was funding um and that to me seems totally legitimate um these are not venerable academic disciplines they are politics political uh satrapies by uh trading under a false pretense of scholarship um they don't belong in universities right i mean you could you could have study groups elsewhere um they, they don't deserve the dignity of the university uh it's not like orban in that orban did 
did a very separate thing, which is he took state money to endow a university that is then was then privatized and then stuffed with um, appointees that kind of he's trying to, what he's trying to do is actually create a kind of um, self-sustaining conservative elite that is beyond the reach of future liberal governments in Hungary. Um, you know, kind of the opposite of what uh, we have here where we have a self-sustaining liberal elite uh, that's often beyond the reach of conservative governments. Um, so, and what do I think of it? I mean, I think what's interesting about this is for decades, conservatives, governors and legislatures have been content to just put up, you know, a token fight with academia, complain about it, but then ultimately like write the checks in the end with very, Mm -hmm. very little. I think it's not just that DeSantis is being bold and has discovered that, you know, this is uh, a paper tiger, right? That, that uh, going at education as a conservative has no political downside. I think this may also be a sign that we, ha- we really do have this overproduction of elites problem, right? I mean, the growth of these DEI offices and administrators on campus is a kind of sign of this cancerous overproduction of graduate uh, degree holders who have no useful work to do in industry, right? So it's like they have to be employed somewhere. Well, let's just continue giving financial privileges to universities, endow them like medieval monasteries, making them, you know, entirely uh, like sovereign wealth funds unto themselves. And then just have this giant class of people who do nothing but political formation of our future leaders, right? That's all they do um, with all of their, their, uh, their own academic training. Um, But what we find is there are fewer college students coming up the ranks because there's fewer children in this country and there are fewer foreign students coming to our universities to study at them. There are, there is unbelievable competition in the academic job market uh, all over the place uh, for both these dean jobs, these administrative jobs, and for the professor jobs. So states have the freedom <laughs> to start cutting things like tenure and cutting these things down and still getting quality candidates or as best they can. So I think there's there's a ton of room to maneuver. And if if there's a success in Florida you're going to see this everywhere. And yeah, um, yeah and- it kind of makes you wonder why didn't anyone do this before? And on, on Western Civ, that, that hits on something, a theme we, we've talked about before in other realms, you know, tra- transports and, and whatnot, CRT. It's just, if, if you had had a democratic vote at, at any time, anywhere, pretty much, should college kids learn Western civilization? It, it would have been lopsidedly in favor, but it eroded away. And these, these requirements were destroyed. And oftentimes these courses just totally disappeared because of the internal dynamic at these universities and, and among um, this elite. And, and here you have uh, you know, a governor who has the legitimate power to affect how these public schools and, and universities operate saying no and, and giving expression to the common sense view that was ignored for for decades. So, so Dominic, any thoughts on anything's been said? Obviously, feel free. But I, I'm wondering if you have any take. Usually, the focus of a conservative 
uh, reform thoughts, you know, with regard to higher education is cost. And one thing I thought was interesting about this is that this, this had nothing, nothing to do with cost. It's all content. I agree with that. And I think it's remarkable that the uh, attacks from the left are basically the same as they are when the issue is cost. I'm reminded of 2011 in Wisconsin with Scott Walker's reforms to collective bargaining for public employees, most notably public school teachers. What did the left say? The left said the world is going to end if we get rid of our these special privileges for educators. Um, uh, education quality is going to collapse. Uh, uh, you know, no one's going to want to be a teacher anymore. It's going to be just an absolute disaster. We have to have our special government granted goodies. And that was 12 years ago now. Well, what happened? Well, Wisconsin uh, had, uh, compared to other states, has a, has a pretty decent K-12 uh, public education system. It still does. Uh, Wisconsin still has still has plenty of teachers that are that are doing a great job. Uh, and uh, the only things that really changed are Wisconsin has one of the only fully funded pension plans. Uh, school districts were able to save millions of dollars by being able to bid out their health insurance plans uh, on, on an open market. And public sector unions have uh, lost a lot of their political influence. Um, those are the things that actually changed. And I think we're going to see a similar thing go on here. Florida has a pretty good public university system uh, compared to other states. Uh, they have a very large public university system as well, which is uh, an important thing I think that uh, we should we should focus on and why it's a good thing that Ron DeSantis is governor of Florida instead of, say, you know, North Dakota or something. Um, that, you know, he, uh, because Florida is a big state and it's a growing state, uh, this stuff really matters to the entire country. Um, but I think we're going to see the same thing. It's, it's, it's the same style of argument from the left. Look, if we take away tenure, if we take away uh, these DEI offices, if we, if we take away any of, this, uh, any of this special stuff that only applies to us, uh, the quality of this is going to collapse. This is going to be a disaster. And you know what? I think in 10 years we're going to look back and we're going to say Florida still has a pretty good, uh, pretty good, uh, you know, probably roughly the same quality public university system. It's still going to have a ton of students. And the things that are going to be different are it's going to have less ideological indoctrination, which is a good mm -hmm. thing. So, Charlie Cook, segue to you. A, uh, a, I hate to disappoint, but this is not a nebulous uh, exit uh, question. It's, it's not going to be precise, Simplistic and clear. Is, is DeSantis going to win in his, his fight to reform public uh, colleges and universities in Florida? Well, he can't lose in that the universities are so bad that any change, however small, will help. Do you mean, is he going to get everything he wants? No. Is he going to make a difference? Yes, he is. And I suspect he's going to inspire public officials in other states to do the same thing, which will improve the status quo there as well. And I think that will be a win. I don't think you can expect perfection. I think you can only expect improvement, and I think we're going to see it. MBD? Um, so there's going to be a ferocious fight back in in, in years to come when when Democrats get in in their offices uh, to reconsolidate uh, lost territory 
So I expect that, but I am, uh, I'll just say this. I think we will look back on DeSantis um, and say he was the political leader that understood that the right had somewhere to go on education. And we're going to associate him and what happened in Arizona last year and is now starting to happen across the country as the moment when the like, the kind of conservative counter-revolution in education happened. And it, it's not just him. It's also millions of homeschoolers and mm-hmm. enterprising private school um, people, because ultimately, like, I mean, if you, if you look at the demographics, um, people that are having kids are more, are more conservative than the people that aren't having kids. And there was inevitably, as that, that lifestyle polarization uh, kept happening, it was inevitable that there was going to be a big blow up between child having conservative uh, parents and students versus uh, dominant progressive uh, educational establishment that 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 fight had to happen and it's happening now and so, uh, so the sign assignment desk for you mbd i think you should write a big print piece on the exodus from from public schools so yeah uh, there, there you go you got you got something out of this podcast maybe an idea <laughs> D- dominic so I, I imagine you're a yes given what you're saying earlier uh yes i think this is i think this is going to be uh a good move for desantis um I think it's going to be a good move for Florida. I think it's going to be a good move for uh, the students there. I hope that um, more governors follow his lead. Uh, I'm looking at you, you know, Brian Kemp in Georgia, Bill Lee in Tennessee, uh, mm-hmm. you know, various other governors who are very much in the same uh, mind as DeSantis on a lot of issues and are very capable executives. I'd, I'd like to see more states do the same thing. So I'm going to make it unanimous. Uh, I often say if it's unanimous, we're wrong, but we were unanimous a couple episodes ago when we were talking about the AP African American Studies course and whether DeSantis will win that battle. We all said yes, and uh, uh, the indications are he he has has uh, uh, won at least some sort of victory because the college board kind of instantly went back and uh, radically changed section four of that course, which had to do with contemporary uh, issues, take out a lot of the recommended left, left-wing writers and institute at least a little ideological balance. So we're right about that. Uh, maybe we'll be right about uh, this one as well. Certainly, I hope so, because the stakes are huge. With that, let's pause and hear from our second sponsor this episode, The Bonson Group. The state of today's economy seems confusing, vulnerable, and even concerning to many. And that has widespread implications, not just for business owners, job seekers, and consumers, but also for investors. This is where our friends at The Bonson Group come in to provide solutions, clarity, and wisdom in the monetary, fiscal, and geopolitical instability of our day, led by our own David Bonson, heard recently on this podcast and all the time on the Capitol Record. By the way, he has a fascinating interview with Rusty Reno that just posted a week or so ago that everyone should check out. Anyway, the Bonson Group manages over $4 billion of client capital and has become the leading independent private wealth management firm in the country, guiding investors to positive returns in 2022, even as the stock market wallowed in a bear market, their deep commitment to dividend growth investing to a philosophical foundation that is not shaken and stirred by the headlines of the day warrant your attention. Check out DividendCafe.com to learn more 
about the Bonson Group today. You'll find free weekly economic commentary at DividendCafe.com. And if you're interested in learning more about the Bonson Group, you can do so from that website. So go to DividendCafe.com for your antidote to the laziness and groupthink of today's index investing insanity and discover a more bespoke and tailored solution worthy of your portfolio and financial needs. So MBD, let's just hit one other thing, exit question style. Before we go, we had a warning from uh, Air Force four-star general that war with China uh, could come within the next two years. We have uh, a balloon, a spy balloon over the United States. I think it was discovered over Montana. Uh, from the the Chinese, classic kind of Cold War stuff. So your level of worry about a major war with China within the next two years from zero to 10, zero, you're you're, uh, unlike MBD usually, you're totally relaxed about this, not concerned (laughs) about any uh, worst case scenarios whatsoever. 10, you got the makeshift bunker stocked up in case of uh, nuclear conflict, I'm at I'm at a six. Um, in general, I I believe China is committed to the you know peaceful rise for as long as it can manage it. Um, but I'm a, I'm of the belief that uh, tying ourselves down in uh, in Ukraine as we are doing presents a very juicy opportunity, uh, in the Pacific. We are, we are $19 billion behind in shipping weapons to Taiwan while we are depleting our stockpiles of weapons, uh, supplying Ukraine, uh, and discovering the, the, the bottlenecks in our own military industrial supply chain. Um, so I think there's, there's an opportunity and, and, um, if you read Niall Ferguson's columns about the Ukraine war, um, he writes often about how, you know, um, sometimes little wars like this are the prelude to world war. Um, and, and, uh, he definitely is haunting me these days. Dominic. Um, yeah, you know, these predictions, uh, come and go from various people, uh, I think it's really hard to say one way or the other. Um, and uh, the best answer is just to be prepared for uh, whatever whatever might come. I think the United States is in a better position uh, with respect to China than it was only a couple of months ago, simply because of the new uh, House Select Committee on China. I think that they are doing, they're going to do some really good work. I think this, uh, this, uh, you know, Mike Gallagher leading that is, is the best guy that we could have picked to do that. And I'm really glad that he's in charge. I think the, uh, uh, this balloon incident really showed how important this is because now whenever anything happens, China related, uh, the press is going to see what Mike Gallagher has to say about it. Cause he's the chairman of the China committee. And, um, you know, uh, the, the, that, that sort of uh, renewed focus from Congress and from our government in general on those on those questions, I think, is going to be a really positive development. And uh, I wish them all all the best in in their in their work on that committee and on making sure that the U.S. government is prepared for uh, whatever might come. 
That's that's great, Dominic. But what's your number? Oh, oh, that's right. There was a number. Uh, let's say four. Four. All right. A little less alarmed than MBD, Charlie. That's four out of ten chance we are all with China. No, how alarmed? I don't think it was a chance. No, it was just how, how level, 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 level worries of four. Out of ten. Yeah. I'm about to well, I should say, actually, what do we mean by war with China? Ma- major war with China. Uh, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're fighting to defend Taiwan, that kind of thing. Okay, so that counts. Okay, oh, so yeah. yeah, so okay, yeah, so let's say let's say let's let's say four then. Yeah. All right, still four. I'm a two. I don't think that it's impossible, and I don't think that it will be avoided without a lot of work. But I think we'll do the work, and we're in a good position, and we're worried about it, and we're talking about it on this podcast, and that's a good sign. And I'm as a result a two. All right, so we're kind of we're uh, all over the map. I guess I go uh, more of the MBD range, uh, five and a six, five or six. I basically I don't I don't know. I, I have no idea, but it certainly should be uh, a major worry. We should certainly should be preparing as if there is a strong likelihood of it happening. And uh, on the um, you know on the on the more worrisome side of the ledger, you know this is. When, when a, um, a foreign adversary says they're going to do something, I mean, Putin basically said he was going to invade Ukraine. Like every indication was that he was committed to do it, you know, uh, ideologically and geopolitically and everything else. And uh, I think uh, China is absolutely the same way um, with Taiwan. So I don't know when they'll go. I don't know what actually form going will take, but um, I, I think it has to be a, a pretty big worry so i'm up with a, a five or a six with mbd really quickly let me do a plug for nr plus digital subscri- subscription service at nationalreview.com your way around our metered paywall your way to see 90 percent fewer ads if you sign up and log in your way to de- dive uh, deeper into our community comment on articles and blog posts be invited to exclusive calls and events we did one just uh, Earlier this week with the aforementioned David Bonson, it's a great deal all around and very importantly is a way uh, to support our valuable journalism. So if you're not already a member, please, please, please sign up today or tomorrow or the next day and join tens of thousands of your fellow National View readers as a member of NR+. Let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you've been admiring the art of Eric Joyner. Yeah, so Eric Joyner is an artist. I think he's in San Francisco. He um, He's a painter and a, kind of a silly one and not one I think readers would expect me to enjoy so much. He His main subject is like Rock'em Sock'em style robots in odd situations, like yeah. towering over a Japanese city or... Flying not, in space with do- not sound great. Flying in space with with uh, donuts. Uh, it, it's just very bizarre. Or sometimes he recreates famous images like uh, Ali knocking out Fraser in the form of Rock'em Sock'em robots. Okay, now, I'm seeing this now. So you you like this stuff? I I don't know why, but I I do. I actually have um, his paintings submerged here in my office. It's like a. a parody of the thinker and uh <laughs> i don't know it just it's very unlike me so i thought i'd, I'd share it with the audience 
All right. Okay. Well, uh, people should check it out. Make up, make up their own minds. Don't let me uh, prejudge it for you. So, Dominic, you, you got away with a with a major uh, cl- cleaning faux pas, where you threw in your dry clean only pants with the rest of your laundry, and you lived to tell the tale. That's right, Rich. I put dry clean only in. With the regular laundry, wasn't paying wow. close enough attention. I've always, I've always wondered what would happen if, if, if I, uh, I too, uh, I too. Most people, I think, are quaking in fear, wondering what would happen <laughs> if they if they made such a mistake. And let me report to you, they are perfectly fine. Wow. All right, Charlie Cook, you've been listening to Marriage Figaro. I have, and I suppose once again, as with Beethoven's Fifth and other masterworks, I had forgotten how great the pieces of music that I know are great actually are. I could go a year, two years, without listening to The Marriage of Figaro or Don Giovanni and just know in my soul that they're stunning pieces of work. And then I put them on and I remember all over again just how utterly stunning and uplifting and magical they are. The Marriage of Figaro... The overture is famous. You hear that from time to time. People play that. It's produced at concerts without the rest of the opera. But just the next part of the opera, just the the introductory scene where the guy's measuring his bed, shouting out numbers in Italian, the way that it is written, the, the musical ingenuity where Mozart moves the uh, recitation of the numbers venti from the third beat to the fourth beat as another voice comes in that alone would have made the opera i mean for for an average composer that alone would have been the highlight and it's just the beginning uh, it is an astonishing piece of work and i i forget to listen to these because i know in myself that they're wonderful so i had a, a memorabilia setback. I'm a memorabilia collector, a sports memorabilia in a very, very minor key. And I had uh, completed a purchase of a signed Billy White Shoes Johnson Houston Oiler mini helmet. And not the, the classic Houston Oiler helmet with the, 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 the white background and the oil derrick on it, which is top five, top five NFL helmets of, of all time, I think clearly, but a throwback helmet uh, slightly prior to that era that was all blue with just a, a simple white uh, oil Derek that he signed and had his, his number on there, number 78, if I'm not mistaken. And then the sad news came from this dealer that uh, he had made a mistake and actually he was all out of Billy White Shoes Johnson signed mini helmets uh, i was i was looking forward to to getting this thing and and uh, it's not it's not gonna happen with that it's time for our editor's picks mbd what's your pick uh my pick is um armand white's the academy awards bad faith riseboro scandal um i'm the big armand white booster on the podcast um and he just flays hollywood uh like no one else in the co- in the uh country so check him out Dominic. Uh, my editor's pick is the explosion in Wilhelm Rupka related content we have oh, had yeah. on the site the last couple days. And by explosion, I mean two posts, uh, one by mm-hmm. one by Jack Butler and one by Jay Nordlinger. 
both are excellent. Uh, Jack's post is uh, referencing a Law and Liberty article from Samuel Gregg, who's also a NR contributor, uh, talking about Rupka, who was a German economist um, who uh, in the 1930s was one of the first professors that the Nazis uh, fired after they took over because he spoke out uh, clearly and with really impressive conviction against uh, Nazism, spent World War II in exile, returned to West Germany post-war and helped advise the government through the uh, Wirtschaftswunder, the uh, economic development that they saw after that, and uh, a really, really remarkable uh, really, really remarkable economist and remarkable man that uh, conservatives can learn a lot from. And Jay, Jay's post was talking about how much Bill Buckley admired Rupka and also about uh, Ludwig, Ludwig von Mises' uh, obituary for Rupka, which was published in National Review uh, after he after he died. So uh, uh, really good, really good uh, history of uh, a great free market economist. All right. Charlie, what's your pick? Michael Brendan Doherty's piece titled Democrats are stuck with Biden. I have one caveat, and that is that if, as I think possible, Biden is embarrassed publicly in some way that is impossible to downplay, then the Democrats will have to get rid of him. But if that doesn't happen, I think Michael is exactly right. I think Joe Biden is the Democrats' best choice. And I agree with his conclusion, which is that while that may be true, it is not good for America. So my pick is from one of our young reporters, Brittany Bernstein, who managed, I'm not sure quite how she managed this, but to get the supervisor on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors on the phone who wrote the legislation that created this reparations committee that came up with a rec recommendation for a $5 million payment for all African-Americans living in San Francisco. And he said, actually, this is not enough. This is not enough. So that's, uh, that's good to know. That's it for us. You've been listening to a National View podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or account this game without the express written permission of National View Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thanks to Charlie. Thanks to Dominic. Thanks to MBD. Thanks to Patriots History of the United States and the Bonson Group. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.